Thank you. Well, as we prepare to engage with God's word this morning, please join me in prayer. Lord, help us to turn our hearts to you and to hear what you will speak. For you, Lord, will speak your peace and your truth to us through Christ our Lord. Amen. This morning, we are starting a new series. And it will take us several months, and we are going to be looking at some of Jesus' parables. We were struggling for a pithy and creative title, so we came up with Parables of Jesus. Um, I am excited about concentrating on Jesus' teaching, and especially his parables, because they can be so puzzling. And they are meant to be. So I want to start with some general background about parables and about Jesus' use of parables before we get into our scripture text this morning. Now, clearly, Jesus is not the only one who has used parables. It's a rhetorical device. Parables in that kind of language is a way of telling deeper truths through stories and through examples, through images, and through comparisons. Aesop's fables is an example that comes to mind. Those are a type of parables that are outside the Bible. We used to have a book of Aesop's fables. I don't know if you remember that. We had fun going through it. They were entertaining, and they give us little glimpses of, of wisdom, but there was no overarching, or overarching truth or theme to those stories, mainly for entertainment and a little bit of wisdom. Now, in the Old Testament, there is a rich tradition of uses of parables and imagery. Think about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They all used images and comparisons and parables to enlighten and to teach. Because it's a disarming way to bring truth. And often, the prophets were bringing a message that the people really did not want to hear. A good example of this is Nathan, when he was confronting King David about his actions against Uriah and Bathsheba and against God. Nathan comes to King David and he tells him a story that inflames his sense of justice so that Nathan could expose and David could actually see his own acts of injustice. An observation from the commentaries that I've read has said that parables deceive a person into truth. Since Jesus was bathed in Old Testament scriptures, and he is the fulfillment of those scriptures, it makes sense that the Old Testament would be the primary influence on Jesus's teaching and parables. And we will see that as we go through this series. 
But even though parables are a common rhetorical tool, and even though they were apparent in the Old Testament, Jesus was truly unique in his use of parables. He is the master of parables. There is no one before and no one since who has used parables as creatively, as effectively, and as efficiently as he did. In fact, parables make up 35% of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. Now, parables are challenging. They can be very hard to understand. What are they saying? How much of the individual elements are the, of the parable are meaningful? I think one of the hardest things about Jesus' parables is to know when to stop interpreting. And we talked about this in preaching group this past week. Clearly, not every element of every parable represents something. And the tendency, though, can be to look for meaning that isn't there. What does the soil represent? What does the man represent? And so, We have to be careful that we don't try and put meaning into places where it wasn't intended. So as we go through this series, there are a couple guiding principles or guiding questions that can be helpful. We talked about them in preaching group, and they've been mentioned in some of the commentaries. And the first is to remember that Jesus is not trying to say all things with one parable. Jesus used parables typically to respond to a challenge or to a question or to a situation. So to understand the meaning of that one parable that we're dealing with, we need to look into the context of what Jesus was responding to and try and get at that implied question that he is answering. So Jesus did not tell parables to make everything clear. as much as we want that, as much as I want that, I just want the answer. Jesus didn't tell parables for that reason. He told parables to engage people, to encourage people to listen, to really listen, to challenge people to get outside of the box of their expectations and to puzzle. And ultimately ultimately to make a decision about his offer of the kingdom. And those invitations and resulting responses, they carry consequences, big ones, individually and communally. So this brings us to our first scripture text from Mark 4. And what Jesus himself says about parables. Now, we won't read the whole chapter because there's so much there. And I really, this morning, want to focus on what Jesus actually said about parables himself. Before we actually move on to the parable of the growing seed, which is our focus for this morning. So Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 1. 
Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. Now we'll move to verse 9. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. In that last verse, verse 12, Jesus quotes Isaiah, chapter 6, 9 and 10. Now that is a really loaded reference that Jesus made that was not lost on his followers, that might, but it might have been lost on us, um, which is one of the reasons why we read that portion of Scripture earlier in the service, so we could understand the context of where Jesus was pulling that from, because his, his followers knew it. As soon as he said it, they went right to Isaiah. So for us to understand what Jesus is saying here and why he's referring to those verses, we need to take a little closer look at Isaiah 6, I think. So Isaiah, in this chapter, is describing an encounter that he has with God. One thing that's important to note is that this encounter is not at the beginning of his ministry. Even though our Bible headings might imply that, he's already been at this for five chapters. And in those five chapters, Isaiah challenged, he challenged the people of Israel again and again and again, calling them to repent and change their ways, trying to point out their folly and pleading with them to see truth. And if you read through Isaiah last December, you will know that Isaiah did not mince any words. He hit this message really hard. But the people were stubborn. They were unwilling to hear. Their hearts were hard. And here we come to chapter 6. It's the account of Isaiah's beautiful and harrowing encounter with God, where his guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. Here am I. Send me. To what? What does God send Isaiah to? to a really harsh reality where Isaiah's words of judgment from God will now have the opposite effect than, their, than what was originally intended. These words from God were originally intended to bring his people back to him, to draw the people into repentance. But their hearts were too hard. So Isaiah's message, so Isaiah will now give the same message, 
but it will actually have the effect of hardening the people's hearts. People who could have humbled themselves did not. So judgment is coming, and their hearts are hard. Isaiah's response, how long? Until the cities are destroyed, houses deserted, and the Lord has sent everyone away. That sounds really, really desolate. Until that little hint of hope right at the end, the stump will be left, and the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The holy seed. So now we come back to Jesus. Why does Jesus speak in parables? Jesus uses Isaiah's story to shed light on what is happening and will continue to happen in his ministry. Jesus is bringing a prophetic message, and he is calling the people of God, but their hearts are hard. He's announcing the kingdom of God, but many don't want it. And this is the harsh reality of Jesus' parables. They show the nature and character of those who hear. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Where parables find a willing reception, further explanation, more revelation is given. Where there is no response, the message is lost and the heart will harden. Jesus' parables both conceal and reveal. In this way, they are the perfect medium for Jesus to say audacious, bold, and challenging truths. For those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand, the revelation of God's kingdom, it's available. And for those who have calloused hearts and closed eyes and ears, Jesus' parables and messages message will not invite, but will actually repulse. People are moving one way or the other towards Jesus and his kingdom or away, towards his rule or away. Jesus' challenging teaching and masterful prophetic parables prompt the direction and push the decision. This is the reality of engaging with Jesus' teaching. So now we come to the parable of the growing seed. Almost. Before we read the parable, I would like to set the stage just a little bit more. To understand this parable, we need to look at the bold and audacious statements Jesus is making in his prophetic message. This struck me really hard as I was studying this passage. Because what Jesus is saying is really, truly unique from all of the prophets that have gone before him. 
Jesus' claim. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's arriving. The good news, the good news is that the kingdom is here. The kingdom that has been promised since Abraham, Mount Sinai, and King David, that the prophets have talked about Isaiah and Ezekiel, that kingdom is here. Mark 1.15 The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Matthew 4.17 Jesus again says, Repent, change your thinking, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke 4.18 Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 describing the kingdom of God and says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's bold. A poor Galilean itinerant preacher with a ragtag group of followers in a backwater place is saying the kingdom of God is here. It's available. So the natural, the natural response to the claim, that claim, then and now, is where? Where is it? How can this be the kingdom of God? Sure, Jesus is healing people and he's driving out demons and he's teaching with a lot of authority, but wasn't the kingdom of God supposed to be a mighty display of God's power? and defeat evil and remove all the nations that were afflicting Israel? With the arrival of the kingdom, the Jews expected deliverance from Rome's oppression, the removal of evil, righteousness to be established, and material blessing, good things. So the question remains, where is God's kingdom? And more than 2,000 years after Christ's inauguration of his kingdom, how much more does this question plague us? How can this be the kingdom? Just like the Jews, we look for God's mighty display of power, his final defeat of evil. We expect deliverance from oppression and freedom from evil. Where is justice? Where is the blessing? If the kingdom of God came with Jesus, where is it? Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Jesus also said, this, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it 
because the harvest has come. In this parable, Jesus begins to answer that question, where is the kingdom? By saying, the kingdom of God is happening. Jesus asserts that the kingdom process is already underway with his teaching and activity. The kingdom has its beginning in and is directly tied to what Jesus was doing. Jesus set in process, set in play, a process that is going to lead to the fullness of God's kingdom. As surely as putting a seed in a ground leads to a harvest. So even if hidden and unrecognized, the kingdom is present and will be fully revealed in time, in God's time. And it does take time. Now it's important to note that this parable is not teaching how humans should act. It's showing us what the kingdom is like. The parable does not address what humans can do or should do. There are other teachings and parables by Jesus that address those concerns. This is a parable describing the kingdom of God. As Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a seed. Everything that is needed for the end of the harvest is present now. Jesus' coming in ministry has begun a process that is as inevitable as seed growing and producing a harvest. That's good news. But what's the takeaway for us? What's the takeaway? I'll confess it was a struggle for me to see it because I'm wired to offer comfort and encouragement. And I had a compulsion to make this parable about comfort and encouragement and ultimately to try and make the, com the parable about us. It's not about us. It's about the kingdom. And while there is a lot of comfort and encouragement in God's kingdom and peripherally in this parable, that's not Jesus' focus. His focus is not our comfort. This parable is about his kingdom. So, what's the takeaway for us? It's a challenge. It's a challenge of Jesus' teaching in this parable and the challenge is that we are not asking the right question. The question is not asking, is not about asking, where is God's kingdom? Asking this question shows that we're actually looking at this through the wrong lens. The real question is, do you see it? Can you see it? 
Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Seeing Jesus' kingdom will require patience and will require a different lens. And it will be frustrating and it will be confusing. But the question remains, do you see it? Jesus' claim that God's kingdom is happening now is still audacious. Maybe even more so. We have 2,000 years of history where the church and Christians seem to fail at sharing and living in Christ's kingdom. All around, we can be inundated with examples of corruption and injustice and evil and broken lives and broken relationships, even in the church, among his believers. But we also have beacons of love and grace, demonstrations of service and humility in big ways and in small ways. We have glimpses of reconciliation that defy expectations. And we see lives, our lives, incrementally changed by the good news. Do we see God's kingdom? It's not coming as expected, and it's not looking like we thought. Do you see it? We can be sure it's here because Jesus staked his life on it. The holy seed is sown. Jesus is enthroned as king through his death and resurrection. His kingdom is here. Words from Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will do this. Do you see it? Please join me in prayer. Lord God, 